going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight. As I've spent more and more time with the Corinthians, uh, Corinthians kind of get a bad rap as one of the um, most troublesome churches in the New, ne- New Testament time. And they did have many, many troubles, but I just find uh, more and more sympathy for uh, their questions and their wrestlings uh, with their faith. Uh, as we approach this chapter, uh, the last chapter, chapter 6, Paul told us uh, that we're supposed to use our bodies to glorify God. And in this chapter, chapter 7, uh, he's sort of explaining how to do that. So in verses 1 through 9, he explained how to do that with respect to our sexuality. And now, as we look into this next uh, part of the chapter, he's going to be doing so with respect to marriage and vocation. And so let's look at uh, what, what uh, God has to say to us today. Chapter 7, starting at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his, of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God." Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called... There, let him remain with God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, this is a a difficult passage, and the message um, difficult as well. And so, Lord, we just pray uh, for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, to apply it appropriately, Lord. We pray that uh, through this time of studying your word, Lord, that you would call our hearts upward, that you would give us a deeper love for Christ, a deeper appreciation for what you have done for us in Christ, Lord, and that you would 
Make us more eager and zealous to follow after Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever felt the itch? I bet you have. I'm not talking about mosquito bites. I'm sure you've had some of those already as well. But uh, there's quite a few well-recognized itches. It happens in the teenage years when teenagers begin to question the rule of their parents. That seventh year of marriage when some reflect on whether they marry the right person. And uh, midlife, uh, so I hear, uh, when we pursue fulfillment in a motorcycle. But, but the itch also crops up at a lot of other times. It's nearby almost whenever there's a, a pause or a trial or an opportunity in life. It's that nagging feeling that maybe we're in the wrong place. Our life is this much ahead. And so how do we make the, the best of that? Uh, are we on the right track? Or our life is this much past? And so is there any way to make up for all the life that has passed? Ever wrestled with those sorts of questions? That's where the Corinthians are in a spiritual sense. They're, they're trying to figure out how their newfound faith, their conversion should affect the life they used to live. They're questioning whether they can really be right with God and live out the Christian life from these circumstances, their circumstances. And that's what Paul's answering here. He does so first by looking at marriage with another Christian, second, marriage to an unbeliever, and third, with respect to other areas of life. Let's look at these in turn. First, marriage with another Christian. In verses 10 through 11, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you read that, it sounds like very simple counsel. If you're married, stay married. It's not new news to us, especially those who have grown up in the church or have any familiarity with Christianity, and, and it really wasn't new news to the Corinthians either. That's the point of Paul's parenthetical, not I, but the Lord. Paul isn't saying this is the really truly inspired stuff, but that this is the same thing that Jesus has already taught you. And so the real question then is, if they already know what Jesus has taught them about marriage, then why are they asking? What would make them think that as Christians, separation or divorce, which are actually one and the same in this context, might be the Christian thing to do? Well, it's because the marriage that they're in is a really difficult marriage. The problems are so deep and so intractable that they're struggling to hold on and with whether it's right to hold on. In other words, they're feeling the itch with respect to their marriage. And so why specifically? Well, it could be any number of reasons, generic disharmony, irreconcilable differences, I married the wrong person kinds of stuff. It's also the weightier issues like past sin and its consequences or ongoing sin, besetting sins, laziness, manipulation, anger, addictions. But all told, if there's a representative issue that sort of defines this, it's probably sexual immorality. 
A number of commentators have pointed out that sexual immorality fills the preceding context. In the last passage, he commanded strugglers to get married. In the last chapter, he elevated sexual immorality to an even greater danger than other sins. And in both the chapter before that and a previous letter, he drew such a hard line on how Christians are supposed to deal with the sexually immoral that it couldn't help but raise questions. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, i.e. a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, not even to eat with such a one. And so, what are we supposed to do when this crops up in, say, a Christian marriage? If Jesus drew the line at adultery, is Paul lowering it? For the sake of our own purity and our witness, should we take lesser expressions of sexual immorality like lustful thoughts or emotional infatuation in modern-day pornography as sufficient grounds for divorce or perhaps even obligatory grounds for divorce. You can probably understand the confusion intellectually, but if you've ever run into this in your own life, well, this is much more perplexing experientially. This stuff and the like is the, is the kind of thing that can make marriage a painful, shameful misery. And that's not even to man- mention the damage that it does to our witness. And so, They're asking, when is it appropriate to cut our losses for our sake and for Christ? Is it it really God's good purpose that we should endure suffering like this and handicap our ministry until we die? Well, look again at Paul's charge in verse 10. It says, to the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And then note that this comes after these hard words on sexual immorality. To put it another way, you could say that Paul is anticipating their questions. It means he's saying, along with Christ, if you're married, stay married, even if it's under these kinds of circumstances. It's why after Jesus taught his disciples the same thing, they said, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. And to be fair... This is no light-hearted charge. It's why traditional marriage vows are so severe. I don't know if you've ever thought deeply about this, perhaps a little bit, but maybe more as you've gone through marriage, okay? Perhaps the romance is what caught you to begin with, but, but for better or worse, in sickness and in health until death do us part is really strong, It means our marital responsibilities to our spouse aren't based on a principle of reciprocation, i.e. if they do this much or they come this far or if they do this for me, then I'll respond with doing my part, but a principle of unilateral commitment. It's a vow to them and to God to proactively give ourselves up for the godly good of our spouse, both independent of how much they've done for us and even if it seems to be for our own hurt. And so why? Because that's what Christ has done for us. And staying married, even under 
these circumstances. We're not abdicating our call, but we're fulfilling it. For better or worse, until death do us part is a God-given mission to show our spouse the same self-sacrificing love that Christ has showed us. And therefore, per Christ and Paul, married Christians have an obligation to one another that forbids divorce for irreconcilable differences or even continued struggles with besetting sins like alcoholism, gambling, and even sexual immorality, excluding adultery. And yet, while that's really strong, and it is, we, we need to be really careful with this charge. These things aren't grounds for divorce, but they're also not grounds for sitting on our hands or enduring or condoning facilitating unrepentant or seemingly intractable patterns of sin and abuse. You see, while Christ will never let us go, and praise God that's true, He also didn't save us from our sins in order for us to remain in our sins. And therefore, if there are persistent irreconcilable differences or gross or recurring patterns of sin in your marriage, then as Christians, both Paul and Christ charge us with something here. They charge us to do everything that we can to to work them out. We're not called to passivity, but fervent activity. Because God didn't design marriage for our punishment and our misery, but our mutual help and encouragement and our joy and our sanctification, and thereby that our marriage might look like Christ in the church. And so to the degree that we're not there, Let's resist that itching temptation to bail or escape, to get out, and instead fight to get right. So point two, what about marriage to an unbeliever? Surely Paul shows a way out here. In verse 12 and 13, Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Well, again, this seems like simple counsel. If you're married to an unbeliever and he or she consents to live with you, then stay married. Yet, it's also not hard to see how this gets really complicated. Household solidarity and male headship were so assumed in the ancient Near East that there wasn't really a category for a mixed marriage. One ancient writer, I love this, gave this note of advice to wives-to-be. He says, It is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. You see how this could cause problems for a new Christian convert. It's why Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And Paul in 2 Corinthians says, What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? It's again, even more so you could say, than the two Christians that are married together, the kind of stuff that makes you wonder if you really wouldn't be better off parting company for for your own sake and for the sake of Christ. And yet Paul again says, no. In fact, he even takes any part in the decision process away from the Christian. It's not if they decide to stay around, but it's if the unbelieving spouse consents. If, they're, if they happen to be willing to maintain the marriage, then, then you as a Christian have to. Now, there's wisdom, of course, that needs to go into that as well, but, but doesn't that 
feel like you're trapped? And so why would God do this? Well, in verse 14, Paul explains. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, on the surface, this sounds like, um, could sound like very confusing stuff. Can a Christian spouse save their unbelieving spouse? In other words, um, can the unbeliever be saved by vicariously living through their Christian spouse? If so, how does that work? Are we, are we able to impute the merit of Christ to another person? And how does that relate to our children? Is their salvation somehow void if our unbelieving spouse leaves? Well, no, on all counts, thankfully. Paul isn't talking about substitutionary atonement or imputation, but evangelism. His concept of saving one's spouse is like a marital application of missionary dating, which also I'm not endorsing, though it did bring about my own salvation. He's, he's hoping that uh, via their proximity to a devoted Christian, the unbeliever and similarly the covenant children might in time respond to their witness and come to faith, and for the children that they might grow up and profess faith. And therefore, the reason God charges us to continue in a marriage like this isn't to punish us or to constrain the use of our gifts, but to use our gifts and our witness. It's as if we're missionaries, but instead of serving on the foreign field, our spouse and our children are the mission field. And yet, unlike in a Christian marriage, this isn't always until death do us part. Verse 15a says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, if they leave or abandon us before death, we are free to let them go, and if we so desire to remarry. And at that, it perhaps sounds like we can shout for victory. It's great news. There's a way out of this impossible marriage. We might even be tempted to to see this as, as the way to negotiate our marriage with an unbeliever. And yet, interestingly, that's not how Paul treats this at all. He doesn't shout hooray for our escape, but he issues consolation. And so why? Well, it's because he's operating from a missionary paradigm rather than a prison paradigm. Except in this case, no one has responded to our evangelism. In the face of that, the emotion that often follows isn't relief or celebration, but it's rejection and failure. We're not asking, what do I get to do now, but what did I do wrong? And our answers are depressing, because when we look in the mirror, we see all kinds of things that we did wrong. No matter how we look at it, we were imperfect witnesses At varying times and to varying degrees, we acted selfishly, we acted out of anger, we acted out of bitterness. And so on top of the rejection, there's this guilt and shame that haunts us. And yet right there, Paul speaks this wonderful word. He says, verse 15b and 16, God has called you to peace. And then he gives this explanation, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, you're free. Your mission is complete. It's okay that they didn't come to faith in your presence. It's okay that you were an imperfect witness because we have a God who isn't dependent on our perfection. 
We have a God who's strong enough to use us in our weakness and to accomplish His purposes through our weakness. And that's good news. But how does this apply to other areas? Point three. In verse 17, Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. It's a powerful uh, verse. It's one to memorize. In short, it's saying, Live for the Lord wherever He has placed you. An old proverb sort of sums it up like this. Bloom where you are planted. It's the same principle that informed Paul's direction on marriage, but he means it for much broader application. In verse 17, he says specifically, this is my rule in all the churches. In other words, this is the norm for wherever a Christian finds himself. And to that end, he gives us two very extreme applications First, in verse 18, he says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. This might not sound like it uh, so well to us, but it gets right to the heart for Paul's audience. If there was an outward circumstance that we needed to to affect in order to get right with God or to be able to live out the Christian life, then Jews would have expected that to be circumcision. Circumcision was the thing that divided the covenant people from the non. It's why it was such a huge issue with the Judaizers in, in Galatia. And yet Paul, just as he did there, points them back to a more root dividing line. As he declares in verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, it's not the outward circumstances that make us right with God, but it's Christ and the work of Christ in us, which is manifested in our keeping the commandments. And so, how then are we supposed to think about our, our circumstances Well, Paul again brings us back to the earlier principle. In verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. More wooden uh, translation of the Greek would put it this way. Um, Each one should remain imperative, command, remain in the call in which he was called. Can you hear the redundancy there? It means our outward circumstances, whether they be circumcision, marriage, or or whatever, they're not the means of our justification, nor a stepping stone to get to that thing that really matters, but, but where God has called us to serve. And Paul makes that all the more clear in the next case. He continues in verse 20A, 21a with these words, were you a slave when you were called? And this, I don't know if it gets your attention, but but it would have gotten all of their attention. Do you ever think about how things might have been different if? We all ask that question from time to time. If only we had those gifts or that opportunity, that privilege, then then we could really serve the Lord. We could fully maximize the use of our gifts. We could gain that best possible standing with the Lord. Well, that's what Paul's addressing here. He says, slavery represented the most desperate and most constrained circumstance that someone could find themselves in. It's the worst. It's, it's the bottom. 
Everyone seeks to move up from there. No one desires that place. One commentator says that masters exercised unlimited power over their slaves, and the institution itself was created and maintained by violence. It was an intentionally oppressive and abusive construct, and there was no normal way of escape. This was your life forevermore. Even in comparison to the Christian woman that's married to an unbeliever, this is worse. Slave doesn't have any right over anything. No property, no decision to do this or that, to marry or not, even over their sexual uh, anything. And by all probability, it's never going to end. This is their life until death comes. And so how could someone possibly continue in a right relationship with the Lord under these circumstances? Well, wouldn't you have to break free from your unbelieving masters in order to walk out the Christian life? And that's the crux of the application. And yet again, Paul makes it clear that even here, it makes no difference. He even says these shocking words. Think about this. You're a slave, okay? For the rest of your life, you're going to be a slave, a subject of violence. No rights. And Paul says, don't be concerned about it. Or, or don't worry about it. But, but wouldn't you? And so, so why does Paul see no need for anxiety here? Well, because there's something much bigger in view for Paul that, that reshapes these things. See, neither social status, vocation, slave or free, in prison or out of prison, poor or wealthy, healthy or bedridden, bears on or limits or handicaps our relationship with the Lord or our ability to fulfill His calling. And yet, despite that reality, Paul takes a moment, a pastoral moment, I think, to address a question on many minds. Are we required then to remain here in, in slavery? Are we then to have no concern for tragic social, vocational, and relational circumstances? Are we supposed to reinterpret these bad things as good things? And of course the answer is no. As Paul clarifies, parenthetically, verse 21b, if you can gain your freedom, legally, mind you, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can work your way out of slavery or prison or disease, etc., and thereby better your situation, improve the use of your gifts, then by all means do so. But if you can't, don't, don't fret. It's, it's not over. It's not, it's not lost. That's his main point. You see, Paul isn't calling us to a kind of fatalistic pacifism or relabeling our, our bad circumstances as good ones or making a war on ambition. But he's acknowledging that the power and purpose of God over and in our gifts and circumstances. As he puts it in verse 22 to 24, for he who has called he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was, was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In other words, a new reality is dawned in Christ that... Um, that, and, and as such, Christians possess an identity and a calling that both supersedes and makes use of our earthly circumstances. 
Uh, we, we have an identity and calling that both supersedes and makes use of our earthly circumstances. And therefore, our circumstances, at conversion or otherwise, are neither determinative of our standing with God, nor our ability to serve God. And unlike the world, the Lord doesn't hold us in contempt for the lowliness or the limitations of our earthly estate, but He holds us in high regard, most high, sacred, incorruptible security because of our heavenly estate. And why? Because as Paul puts it here again, it's the same justification that He gave for glorifying your bodies, okay, is because we've been bought with a price. And therefore, we don't have to go out and do a radical new thing to get right with God or to live out the Christian life, but instead the truly radical thing is that God has already made us completely and immutably right with Him in Christ. And now, He's calling us to live out the Christian life in these circumstances. He says, there, there, remain, let Him remain with God. And so what do we take away from this? Well, God has freed us and called us in Christ to be a sacred influence where we are. So I just ask you, is, is that how you tend to think about where you are and what you're doing there? For instance, is your continuing commitment to an abrasive spouse an insufferable waste of time or the work of God? Is your caring for a, a disgruntled parent with dementia a lost cause? or something more? Is your night shift factory work, silent prayers, or failed attempts at evangelism a forgotten triviality or something significant? Do you see what I mean? This is is the thing that we, we think about when we evaluate what we're going to do and what we're doing there. I think a lot of times we feel like there's got to be something else out there. There's got to be something more meaningful, something more enduring that we still need to get to. All of this stuff is just too common, ordinary, and stagnant to be God's majestic call on our life. And so what do we do? Well, we feel the itch. And especially when things start to get hard or or we catch a glimpse of, of a better opportunity, then we go to work on the anxiety mountain. I do. How do I figure this out? And then we strive to master our circumstances, first by subduing them, and then if that won't work, then we run away from them. But strangely, even in these increasingly dire circumstances, from a difficult Christian marriage to a a marriage to an unbeliever, to, to being a slave, that's not where Paul lands. But instead, he says, there remain with God, or there be a sacred influence for the Lord. And so, why don't we tend to think that way? Well, it's because we struggle to see and trust God in our circumstances, We're too insular. God's not even in the picture. It's just us and the world, and we've got to figure it out. Or we're, We're too American. The world is our oyster. It belongs to us, and we deserve more. It's hard for us to imagine that the great God of all creation would actually call us and then use us in such weak, isolated, sometimes tragic, and often ordinary labors. Does he know what he's doing? To put it another way, we just don't have a category for the genuine mightiness of the widow's might. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you know what? Before Paul's conversion, he didn't either. 
He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was striving to advance as high as he could in Judaism. The reason he persecuted the Christians was because, just like Peter, he couldn't conceive of a God who would send a Messiah to suffer and much less die on a cross. What a, what a waste. What a fantastic, superstitious idea. Where's the glory in such a lowly and life and shameful death? How could God possibly endorse something like that? And yet, and yet so it is that by the will and call and assignment of God, his gospel of free grace for sinners was accomplished. And so it is, so it is that God frees and calls us to be a sacred influence where we are. Do you see the problem? Our problem is a lack of faith. We're like, we're like the disciples out on the boat and, and Jesus says, Oh ye of little faith, can't you see? Can't you see who I am? Don't, don't you see that I reign over all of this stuff? See, what we need to learn is... Is that, this, is that God's sovereign providence rules over our circumstances. We need to trust that the one who, who chose us from before the foundation of the world and who knows the end from the beginning hasn't put us here forever. But that this, as Paul later says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We need to trust that the one who knows the exact number of hairs on our head and who doesn't waste a single one of our experiences has not put us here by chance, but he's called and assigned us to this place in order to glorify, ourselves, glorify himself in our bodies. And we need to trust that the one who bought us at the cost of his own son, who will never leave us or forsake us, but will most certainly carry us through to the end. And as we do that, as we, as we come to grips with our faith, as we exercise our faith, how we think about our circumstances will change. We'll move from seeing them as an unfortunate prison to an opportunity, to a terrible misery, to an intentional ministry, and from a lost cause to an eternally enduring witness. We'll gain a category for the genuine mightiness of the widow's might. And we won't only become a sacred influence where we are, we'll become a light in a dark place, and, and we'll enjoy the peace and contentment and joy of God in our being there. Because according to His sovereign providence, this isn't forever, it's not an accident, and it's not a punishment, but it's our God-ordained mission. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we confess to you tonight that we are a people of uh, we little faith. And so we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would, you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us to see the world that you see. It looks like a, in our life, oftentimes, Lord, looks like it's spinning out of control and uh, it's all up to us. We we have to pull it back together, and we forget you, Lord, and, and so we, we, we confess that as sin, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us a mind and a heart that, that will not be disconnected from Christ, but in everything that we see in this world, Lord, we would see it through the lens of Christ and your reign, your purpose, your presence, and so, Lord, in that you would embolden us then not to just endure, but to be a people on mission. 
The foreign mission field, Lord, is not the only place for you to use your saints, but you have called us each right here. And so, Lord, please give us that kind of vision to be used for you, to, be, to glorify you in our bodies, right here in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our lives. And may you receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.